Let's be clear. The trend line tells us that we are heading towards three to four degrees centigrade of warming across this century. An absolute climate catastrophe. A catastrophe for all species, including our own. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge, as always, that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We acknowledge that we cannot hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for, for our First Nations people. We also acknowledge that there is so much in the ancient wisdom that they've honed from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia. So many answers for us as we face up to the climate crisis. Save the Swifties. Save the Swifties. And if you didn't know that the Swifties need saving, well, you know, at the same time as Taylor Swift was performing for hundreds of so-called Swifties in Melbourne last weekend, and we'll be doing it in the coming weekend in Sydney, the logging of native forests in Tasmania is destroying the breeding habitat of swift parrots. And there's just 750 of these Swifties left. So there is actually a website for that, saveswifties.org. But it's not just the Swifties that are in trouble. The news is now that the polar bears in the Arctic are starving. And that's of course because of the planet which is warming. In Western Australia, we're seeing record-breaking 50 degrees temperatures, and that's too hot for even for kids to go outside to play or to do anything, literally. 50 degrees temperatures, that's where it begins to become life-threatening. And that's what we're getting. But what we're not talking about is why we're getting it. More extreme hot days and dry days and flooding and cyclones and the rest of it. Why are we getting all this? Nobody in media and nobody that I talk to seem to be very concerned about that is because we are burning coal, gas and oil. How do we deal with all this? You're listening to the Sustainable Hour where we talk about this week after week after week. This is our 492nd week where we will be looking into to that question of how do we deal with it. And to begin with, we need to know what's going on. So over to you, Colin Market. OAM with the news from around the world. The Global Outlook. Thank you, Mick. Yes, and my Global Outlook this week begins in New York, where the UN Special Rapporteur warned that the pressure from fossil fuel companies on governments worldwide to raise the fines and the jail times for climate protesters is having a significant effect around the world. He said they've gone past being unacceptable and they've resulted in, and I'm quoting here his words, draconian anti-protest laws, massive sentences and court rulings forbidding protesters from explaining their motives to juries um, and they're now crushing fundamental freedoms. 
that's the result of stuff, something else that nobody's talking about, most certainly in the, in the media. He went on to list the different countries, beginning with the UK, where he said, until recently, it was very rare for members of the public to be imprisoned for peaceful protest. But now you can get six months merely for going on a march. Worst of the countries, when he was listing them, was Uganda, where police assaulted and jailed activists during a peaceful protest last December against the East African crude oil pipeline. Eleven university students were arrested, some were allegedly beaten, and contracted typhoid or malaria while they were detained in an unsanitary maximum security prison. In Spain, he noted that prosecutors have asked for nearly two years of prison time for protesters who threw beet-dyed water onto a congressional building. So you stew up some beetroot, chuck it onto a, um, an authoritarian building, and you get jail time. In Germany, right-wing politicians smeared uh, last-generation climate activists as terrorists a framing duly echoed by some major news outlets in Europe. In the US, they're using a thing called SLAP lawsuits, that's S-L-A-P-P, strategic lawsuit against public participation. They're the fossil fuel industry's weapon of choice against protesters in the US. Energy transfer partners, the corporation whose oil pipeline sparked the standing rock protest in 2016, has sued Greenpeace for $900 million, that's US dollars of course, alleging that the group had orchestrated the protests. Now that suit failed, partly because TV coverage showed that indigenous activists were leading the protests. Nevertheless, Energy Transfer Partners, which has got bottomless amounts of money, from the fossil fuel, the oil industry in particular, then sued Greenpeace again, demanding $300 million in damages. The aim of this suit, according to Greenpeace, is to put us out of business and scare others into silence. That's Ebony Twilly, Martin, Greenpeace's executive director, talking about the case which is scheduled to come back in front of the courts again in America in July. It's almost a sort of a Trump saga in reverse, isn't it? Now, back home here in Australia, two of our nation's top economists, that's the ACCC chair, Rod Sims, and the AGE columnist, Ross Garno, uh, Sydney Morning Herald columnist as well, Ross Garno, they've calculated that our nation could raise $100 billion in one year from a fossil fuel tax. Then they took this a step farther to say that if this were to be invested in, in subsidising green iron, aluminium and fuel production, it would set us on the path to becoming a world renewable energy superpower. And this, in turn, would create employment and raise the standards of living for all Australians. Now, they used the European five-year average carbon price of $90 a tonne for their calculations and they used our own meteorological data as one of the sunniest and the windiest places on the planet 
with bountiful open spaces, all of which would be used as part of that format. And they concluded that truly there are few countries better placed for the renewable era. But the single big drawback to this progress, they said, is the Commonwealth Parliament. Because basically every state government and opposition supports good climate and energy policy, they noted. It's only at the federal level that politicians appear to be unable to make any sensible climate decisions, and it's at the federal level where the fossil fuel companies have got their highest concentration of lobbyists. The only thing that I would add to that is there's an election coming up this year, so employ your vote wisely and talk to others about which parties we can trust on this matter. Now, also this week, the world's two biggest miners, who both happen to be overseas-owned Australian corporations, they teamed up to develop Australia's first electric steel smelting furnace. The miners, of course, are BHP and Rio Tinto, who, along with Blue Scope Steel, that's a former subsidiary of BHP, they will share technology and research data in creating a pilot facility to produce clean steel with the aim of commissioning the project as early as 2027. The aim is to reduce and then eliminate the use of coking coal in the steel-making process and replace it with sustainably produced electricity. Now, if successful, the process could be used in steel mills globally, including those in China, which is the most in the world. Now, China um, just about closed for the last week because of the Lunar New Year, but it gave us a chance to look at their figures, and they're quite staggering. It's well worth spelling out the enormity of what China is doing environmentally. Compared to us, we're just dragging our feet. The China Electricity Council says the country will add 210 gigawatts of solar power to the nation's grid this year. 210 gigawatts, that's twice the entire solar capacity that's installed in the US to date. And it won't stop there. Carbon Brief says that China's output of solar panels was 310 gigawatt in 2022, 500 gigawatt in 2023, and it's aimed to be 1,000 gigawatt in 2025. That's four times the total installation of new solar worldwide, and China is putting it in in the next 18 months. And that comparison of just how slow our own governments are compared to somebody that we don't normally even read about in the papers, China, closes my roundup for the week with a few things to think about. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our guests today are both from the Edmund Rice Centre for Justice and Community Education. We have Alopi Latukefu, who's the director there, and then we have Karine Fagare, who is the senior manager for advocacy and research at the Edmund Rice Centre. So welcome, Karine, Alopi. Thank you. Hello. The aim here is for you to tell us about the work that you're doing. And Alopi, I understand you've got a Tongan heritage there, so 
the Pacific uh, Partnership calling? Is that, is that part of your work to, in the Pacific Islands? Well, in fact, it is part of the work of the centre and has been since 2006. And Corinne, up until very recently, was the coordinator for the Pacific Calling Partnership. And it is something that's a very important part of the work that we do within the centre. That work is really focused on climate leadership and climate justice in the Pacific region and has been an important contributor to bringing the voices of the Pacific, particularly those from Kiribati and Tuvalu, to the fore, both internationally, but also in Australia and within the region as well. The Pacific Calling Partnership was founded in 2008, and we were founded as a result of calls for solidarity coming to us from Kiribati. People were saying that climate impacts are affecting their livelihoods and their homelands, and they wanted to work with us in solidarity. Uh, to try and bring uh, their experience, their lived experience of climate impacts uh, to Australia and to the world. And so in 2008, we founded the program and started to uh, work with our partners, in, firstly in Kiribati and then Tuvalu, to help to build leadership in the space of climate justice, um, to help grow uh, those wonderful climate leaders, which are now leading the game on climate justice um, outcomes internationally. I mean, the Pacific, uh, you know, is really leading the game in terms of advancing climate justice outcomes. It needs to, Corinne, because it's the most vulnerable to the, certainly to the rising sea levels. Um, can I ask, very quickly, what concrete matters are happening since this partnership occurred? Are you taking people to court? Are you uh, lobbying? What exactly are you doing in order to further your cause? So in terms of the Edmund Rice Centre, it's been long-term, slow and robust work of helping to build climate leadership in Kiribati and Tuvalu. We've also done work in the Torres Strait and other parts of the Pacific. And then creating, helping to create opportunities for those voices to be heard. So over the years, we have taken, we have uh, facilitated Pacific Islander delegations to international climate conferences, otherwise known as COPs. Now, uh, when we started and for a long time, there was no other NGO doing this work. Um, now, uh, thankfully, in the last couple, you know, two, three years, we're at a stage where we're not really uh, needed in that international, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, facilitating Pacific Islander delegations to, to international climate conferences because, um, you know, they well and truly pull their weight, you know, at those international conferences um, but we still uh, sponsor Pacific Islander delegates to go. And we also um, organise uh, many events um, that are opportunities for advocacy within Australia. So we have worked both as at grassroots to bring uh, some of our programme participants to Australia and tell their stories to politicians, to parliamentarians, to community groups, uh, to church groups, to schools. These stories really need to be heard 
because they are stories that are based on a fundamental injustice. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're talking about um, the renewable revolution and the Australia, Australia becoming a renewable superpower, we must not forget that whilst this is very important, the transition to renewables must be a just transition that recognises the injustices that have led to the climate crisis. And that's both within Australia in terms of securing um, good jobs for those that are going to be affected by transition to the renewable energy sector, uh, but also to First Nations in Australia and other vulnerable Australian communities um, that are going to be, because of, our, of their vulnerability, and I'm saying that in full recognition also of their incredible resilience, but the reality is that some communities amongst us within Australia are more vulnerable to climate impacts such as rising heat, such as flooding and such as bushfires. And we need to make sure that in parallel to our transition to renewable energy, we recognise those vulnerabilities and ensure that those people receive the support that they need as the climate impacts increase. It is the same thing across the Pacific region. Pacific communities across the Pacific and particularly on atolls such as Tuvalu and Kiribati and others are amongst the most vulnerable to climate impacts in the world. Yet, they have contributed the least to the climate crisis because their lifestyle, which is much simpler than ours, ours is, I would call it, uh, you know, obscene, really. Um, I think that I can use that, that, word, that word to describe uh, the incredible amount of energy that uh, we in Australia use individually on average, um, the lifestyles in the Pacific do not use such amounts of energy. Therefore, their contribution to greenhouse gases is minimal, is absolutely minimal compared to ours. Yet, because of their geographical location and uh, their minimal resources, they are extremely vulnerable to climate impacts such as rising seas, flooding, droughts, etc. So I hope that you can see there that there is a fundamental question of justice and that our transition to a renewable sector must take account and address those issues of justice at the same time. I'm applauding right the way through all of that, Corinne, but I, I'm left with two questions. and I, The first one is to you, Alopi. If the warming of the planet continues at its current rate, and science is telling us where we're going. We're, this year, we're likely to move past 1.5 degrees prior to industrialization. If it continues at this rate, how long has Tonga got before it's unlivable because of the rising sea levels? Or a better way, maybe the better way to say it's how much of it will be habitable. When will you become the um, uh, the people that have to move because of climate change? And for for you, Corinne, the two of you, I've got a question each. 
Uh, Edmund Rice, to my mind, was a, a UK 19th century educator. How did you get involved in Southeast Asian or Polynesian climate change? It, it doesn't seem to be a, um, what would I say? Not, not an obvious connection. So, Alopi, you're first. Okay. Well, to answer that question, uh, it's already happening in the, in Tonga and in other parts of the Pacific where people are having to move as a result of changes in climate and changes in uh, their circumstances. And it may be not necessarily because of rising sea level uh, in their homes, but because of the impact of substantial events, whether they are cyclones or larger events that are related to climate change that are causing, and these are where there's inundations with, with king tides and other things where people's homes have made it impossible, particularly where water, uh, seawater has come in and uh, um, basically salinated the freshwater lens in some, in some contexts. And so people are already starting to move within Tonga. Tonga's a low-lying state, but not as low-lying as some of the atoll states, such as Kiribati and Tuvalu. So we have we have some room to move, but even there, there the population is increasingly on a smaller amount of arable land, and that has its own impacts in terms of long-term sustainability and the ability to maintain populations. I wanted to add also to Corinne's point in that Pacific peoples have been in this region for thousands of years. Our histories, our traditions, our links to the place that we come from is part of who we are. And this impact of climate change, if people have to move and leave their homes, is not just about physical movement. It's about social, cultural and other aspects that actually are huge things to be thought about in terms of these communities. These communities have survived in some of the toughest environments in the world for millennia. We're an incredibly resilient people who have been able to manage being remote and away from most of the world for thousands of years and survived in that context. And yet in the space of 200 years, we have seen the planet shift, uh, the environment shift in such a way that we may not be able to survive on these some of these islands by uh, the end of the century if forecasts are correct. And that's a huge change for many of those communities. Now, that's not to say that this isn't, uh, you know, a scare campaign or something that, you know, we should be raising people's fears about, but it is a reality if the science is correct, that we will see some substantive change happening if we can't change the trajectory of global warming at this point. I might yep. also talk about the Edmund Rice question, if, you, if I may, because Edmund Rice was a philanthropist and, uh, uh, from Ireland who lived at the turn of the, uh, from memory, the 18th and 19th century, who dedicated his life and his wealth 
to educating impoverished Irish Catholics in Southern Ireland, in Waterford, and eventually Dublin, and then moving from there to other parts of the world. By lifting them up through education, providing them with the opportunity to address the issues of social injustice they were facing at that time. And that in that time, if you think about the potato famine and a range of other things that were happening in Ireland and the impact on the Irish community and what happened to those particularly Catholic communities during that time, uh, it was a substantial time of change and impact socially for those communities. So addressing social impact at a time of great change is actually at the heart of what the Edmund Rice legacy is. And this is the same legacy that we are seeing with climate change and with other aspects of change globally, of which we as a centre very much fit into. I would just add to that as well that, um, you know, for, for atolls, low-lying atolls like Kiribati and Tuvalu, I think the widest point in, in, in the Funafuti, which is the capital of Tuvalu, um, the widest point is 300 meters. So on many parts of, and it's the same in Kiribati, and on, on many parts of the atoll, you can see both the lagoon on one side and the ocean on the other. And I think that the highest point on those atolls is maximum two meters. So you can imagine how vulnerable um, this terrain is to rising sea levels, to king tides that are getting higher and higher, and there isn't much room to move. So we're already seeing uh, internal migration from the outer atolls to the capital in both Tuvalu and Kiribati's cases. And, you know, when you've got the shoreline which is eroded by rising sea levels and stronger storm surges, and you've got flooding due to increasing king tides, people don't have a lot of room to relocate. Scientific projections tell us that for atolls such as Kiribati and Tuvalu, there's a great likelihood that they will become uninhabitable by mid-century, by 2050. Not because they're going to go underwater by that time, but because the damage to infrastructure the damage to people's ability to grow their own food is going to be, and, and water security as well, because the fresh water that they have available to, to them now is affected by rising sea levels because it becomes more saline. So it's not safe to drink. So there's an issue of water security. All of those issues are likely to mean that unless, you know, we can for large investments of money to help these atolls adapt, which we don't know if it's possible, but what mm. we know, if it is possible, it is going to cost a lot of money. So if mm. we can't help them to adapt, then it is very likely that those atolls will not be habitable past mid-century. Tonga is facing the perfect storm. Not only... Is there a long-term effect, which is the creeping 
rising sea levels, which is getting worse every year because of the greenhouse effect. But that greenhouse effect is also causing more storms, more hurricanes, and they're causing short-term ones that are happening more frequently. Now, you and the uh, Edmund Rice organization are educating the people of Tonga, and you're also providing money so that those educated people can go and lobby us, if you like, the people who are causing the uh, the effects of climate change. Uh, it's a hell of a job, and as you say, it takes an awful lot of money. What else can you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the issues there is really deepening the understanding in Australia of the Pacific. Um, it is something where the Pacific is understood in certain ways by Australia as a place of destination for, for a holiday, for, you know, an ideal paradise that, you know, people love to go and, and experience the culture, the richness of the cultures of the region. And yet that is quite a surface uh, understanding of the Pacific and of the region and of why this is such an important issue for the Pacific. And I think one of the things that would is very useful is our work in Australia in raising an understanding alongside the work with the Pacific by amplifying the voices of those from the Pacific in Australia and in other areas of the world who may not have a great uh, sense of what the Pacific means, what its issues are and how it thinks about its future. And by providing that, it will hopefully give further impetus for support for the region but also, importantly, support for change in policy and change in the systemic approach that is, is causing climate change and one which, unless addressed, will see the Pacific, as Karim said, threatened before the end of this century. And it's, can I just say, it's not just small, low island, low island atoll states that are impacted. We heard when, within, when we were in Fiji of numerous coastal communities who are now having to be relocated in Fiji, which is a higher uh, uh, altitude country in terms of its, it, it having more op options and a larger um, uh, base of, of land that people can move to. But if people are moving up into less, and often it's the coastal areas that are the most fertile and the most able to be set, farmed and sustained lives, to be moved up further has impacts. It can also makes populations denser and contestability of land and so therefore uh, causes some social uh, and civil conflicts that potentially could emerge as part of the changes that are happening. So this is a very important issue that needs to be understood in its fullness, not just as simply uh, tides are rising and the impact is just that people are being displaced. Um, I just wanted to challenge this notion of, uh, you know, educating, going to educate, um, because what I want to say is that throughout my work uh, on the program, I feel that I have actually been educated you know, Lopi referred to this earlier. 
um, the incredible knowledge and resilience and values that have sustained Pacific peoples in this region for thousands of years. I think we can really learn some very important lessons. And I certainly feel like I have been educated in my work. So I want to really emphasize this important reciprocal relationship between our work and what we bring to the table as Edmund Rice Center and what we learn from working in the Pacific as Edmund Rice Center staff. This is very much in par a partnership. We have as much to gain from this work as people in the Pacific do. And I think that's something that Edmund Rice, um, the, you know, the, the businessman and, and the deeply spiritual person that he was, recognized that our liberation is tied with the liberation of the vulnerable and wonderfully resilient communities we work with. So it's not just about, you know, saving them. It's also about saving us. You know, they are tied together. Forest burning, coral reefs bleaching, wildlife disappearing. We know our natural world is in crisis, but there's still time to turn things around to reverse nature loss to be nature positive by 2030. Meaning we have more nature at the end of the decade than we had at its start. Protecting and restoring nature is not just a nice thing to do. It's essential to safeguard our health and our livelihoods. It's also critical to tackling the climate crisis. Our ocean, plants and soil suck up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and lock it safely away. Together with the necessary deep cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, action to reverse biodiversity loss can help secure a net zero emissions, nature positive and more equitable world for all. If we think about where we're heading, let's be clear, we are over 30 years, 32 years now, since the first major scientific report on climate change that came out in 1990. And so I think when we judge where we are heading, we have to say, well, what have we done since 1990? Well, we've watched emissions go up year after year after year. They're now over 60% higher per year than they were in 1990. So there is lots that you will hear, lots of rhetoric, lots of good words, lots of, op lots of optimism about the future. But given we've known about this subject and apparently been working on it for 30 years, the trend line tells us that we are heading towards three to four degrees centigrade of warming across this century. An absolute climate catastrophe. A catastrophe for all species, including our own. And so that's the direction of travel. When we think about three or four degrees centigrade, we have no historical precedent in, in, in human history for these sorts of temperature changes. And they're occurring overnight. And they don't just occur across this century. Firstly, and we know that things like sea level rise will keep going for hundreds of years after that, and that we are locking in, absolutely locking in, really high levels of sea level rise, maybe seven, eight or more meters. 
So we may only across this century see one or two meters, which will be devastating for many of our coastal cities. And of course, most of the population of the world live near the coast. So that would be devastating for our existing communities. But we're locking in this devastation for centuries to come. But we're also changing very significantly how we will produce our food, whether we will produce enough food, where will that food be produced? And that's because we're changing the complete weather patterns of our, of our, of our society, of, of, our, of our earth. We're changing rainfall patterns, we're changing uh, insect pollination of our crops. So all of this plays out, one, one sort of disaster after another. So any single one of them, we might think, oh, we can, we can resolve, we can deal with that. But when you bring all of these together, occurring almost overnight, you're talking about the collapse of our modern society. You're talking about the collapse of most of our sort of emblematic ecosystems. So this is, this is not a future that we should in any way be, we should be heading towards and we should be doing everything we can to avoid it. The sad state of the affairs is, though, that we're doing nothing to avoid it. There is plenty of talk, but no action. And what we have to bear in mind is the climate only responds to action. It res the physics responds to how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere. So we can talk about efficiency, we can talk about green growth and all of this stuff. It's meaningless. What really matters is keeping the emissions out of the atmosphere. When people are telling you, oh, we've got till 2050 to make these changes, and even then when they say 2050 and net zero, net zero is a, is a real dangerous term in my view. And if you hear the language of net zero, I'd be very cautious about you know, the optimism the person who's saying it um, actually has. Unpick it, reveal what's behind it, and you'll realize what they mean is not zero emissions, not net zero, not zero emissions. So I always call it uh, net zero is Latin for kick the can down the road. Um, and so you need to look at what our technology is hiding. And what they are often hiding is this deep inequality in, in emissions. You know, who are the people presiding over most of the emissions? And the way that they are avoiding asking those questions is to say we can do it with this technology or that technology um, in 2030, in 2040, in 2050, and of course, well beyond that. Because a lot of these net zero models are assuming technologies in 2070 and 2090 and 2100. And these are technologies that say that don't really exist today. And so we're particularly many of, well, many of us who work in the climate change realm, I think are hiding behind this because we've done very well at the system, thank you. You know, we, we have nice places to live. We have um, the benefit of travel, easy travel. We can afford the, the fuel. We don't, we're not in a um, cost of living crisis like many people are facing around the world today. So for us, life is good, life is, life is quite rosy. And we don't like to see ourselves as part of the problem. And one of the ways around that is to delude ourselves and in doing that other people as well, that actually technology is the savior. Technology is part of the picture, it's a prerequisite, but it needs to go hand in hand with fundamental profound social change by those of us who are responsible for the lion's share of the missions. My judgment, my best guess, 
as, as someone who's worked on this for years, is that we are going to fail. We're going to go to three or four degrees centigrade of warming and we'll put up with all, we won't put up with, we'll have to live through or die from all of the repercussions that that will have. That is a terrible prospect. Um, and one that I think we have to try everything we can to avoid. But the message of hope, if there's any thread of hope in this, is that it is a choice to fail. We, we have so far repeatedly, I'm going to say we, what I mean is effectively our leaders politically, academically, in the journalistic community, you know, across the board, those people that have framed this debate have chosen actively to fail for three decades. And when they have you know, breakfast with their own children, I hope they are thinking about what they have deliberately, what we have deliberately imposed upon their future. What examples do we have of, of rapid change? We don't have any examples of this. History is littered with rapid change. From time to time, these things occur. When, particularly when we see there's a collective agreement that we're in a certain, certain situation. So with COVID, now obviously that, a, a deep tragedy, but what we saw was a global response. Now there are lots of, lots of the responses were, were, were not particularly in the right direction. And in an emergency, that's often gonna be the case. Nevertheless, we did see a global response to COVID. We saw a global response to the banking crisis back in 2007, 2008. In my view, not in a healthy, helpful, sustainable way, but nevertheless, we saw a global response. We have people like Roosevelt's fireside speeches going back to the 30s that really were radical changes that were proposed to the social norms of the time. We've, had, we've been through the suffragette movement, we've been through all of the changes in, in race laws and so forth across our history. We need to take those, those examples and accelerate them and say, yes, we can drive change very rapidly. It is a choice to fail and it is a choice to succeed. And if we sit back and wait for the great and good to, to deliver this change, then we will, we will fail. It does come down to all of us to play our role as best that we can in doing this. And thankfully, we are seeing early signs of this with some of the civil society movements who are really working very hard to try and change the agenda. And the change of the dialogue and the mood music over, over the last two or three years, maybe the last five years now, has come from that group. As I say, it hasn't come from the professors or the academics. It's come from civil society. And to me, that's really where the start, the nugget of hope rises. Whilst all this is going on, we still have, in Australia, we still have government ministers approving fossil fuel projects. Just wonder what, what's the feeling around that when we, we have ministers that go to the, visit the islands and talk about, yeah, working together in the future with, uh, with Pacific Islanders. And can I just throw in there that I, I just read in a place called the S&P Global Commodity Insights that Australia actually 
is not only uh, opening up new mines, but they are happily announcing and expecting that coal exports are going to rise with another 10%. This is from the Department of Industry, Science and Resources in Australia that are announcing this in a sort of happy spirit. Yeah, well, according to the rhetoric, Australia is part of the Pacific family. It positions itself there. And I guess the question is, as a family member, how do you treat your family when in need? And I, uh, I would say that if you are there slamming the door in the face of those you want as family to be treated with respect and be treated with kindness and be treated with reciprocity, then perhaps there's some questions that Australia has to look at itself and make decisions about that are in the interest of the family of the Pacific. And that family is the one that will protect it, not just in terms of climate change, despite Australia's views that we can get away with continuing to, to burn fossil fuels and export fossil fuels in the way we do. But also strategically, when we are in a sea of islands, of whom we are bound to and tied to strategically. And if we are not able to hear the needs and the call of the Pacific for change in the areas that matter to them, then perhaps we may have questions to answer when the Pacific stops listening to us on where our needs are in other areas. I love the... Um the irony, of course, is that the two nations that you have spoken of today, which is Tonga and uh, Fiji, both of them are pretty much reliant on tourism for their economies. And tourism, people flying in, they might be spending money once they've flown in, but they're also flying out again, and that's pouring vast amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere, which is the opposite of what you're looking for. Are you in any way looking at finding ways of reducing reducing the amount of CO2 that's being produced simply to keep your economy going? Well, I, I should say I can't speak on behalf of those countries uh, because as a, as a uh, person in Australia, even though my family is from Tonga, Mm. Uh, on my father's side. The region itself has many challenges and issues it faces, not only with the issue of tourism and that, but even things like shipping. And yeah. The Pacific is reliant now on a robust logistics network. And in fact, one of the big things that could be achieved is shifting the shipping industry away from fossil fuels into a renewables and uh, a, a, a less carbon-intensive frame. And that is something that I know many in the Pacific are advocating for and working towards. And it's a very important part of the future because the Pacific wants to be a, a fossil-free region. So there is a, 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 a work on a fossil-free treaty, similar to a nuclear-free treaty that was established in the 70s, defining a place where the Pacific can be declared a fossil-free zone over time. But that requires a lot of change. And again, how do you then balance things like tourism against all of the other factors that uh, are involved? 
I, this is out of left field completely, and I haven't even thought it through. But I'm a very old man, Alopi, and I can remember Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. And the star of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation was the Queen of Tonga Salotic. in an open Queen carriage. Salotic. And her, yep, her images went around the world because she was such a colourful character. And suddenly everybody knew about Tonga in the South Pacific because the Queen turned up at a coronation. Didn't matter about the coronation. There was just this wonderful figure. And uh, look, I'm thinking, I'm thinking it generated in the 1950s that vast amount of very, uh, what is now expensive publicity. And I'm pretty sure that something similar could do it again. If, for example, the Queen of Tonga were to, or the King of Tonga it is now, isn't it, were to turn up at the next climate meeting, at the next COP meeting, in full colourful ensemble, that would draw the cameras for sure and get your message across. I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking beyond somebody, a scientist standing there and telling us stuff that we already know. Well, that's one of the reasons why the COP31, which Australia and the Pacific have put forward and mm -hmm. wanting to host, will be such an important event because of the fact that the region and its voice will be front and centre in such a meeting. And so the ability to bring those people to bear in the region, uh, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the King of Tonga, uh, but certainly uh, he, he, would, uh, he would be someone, along with many other leaders, who I think would see the opportunity to participate in such an important meeting. On the point of Queen Salote's uh, uh, involvement with the coronation in England, what was such an impact was not necessarily her being there, but the fact that she, during when it was raining, uh, was that she left the carriage open. She left the carriage open in order to be there with the people of England at an important event. And that is what impressed people so much because everyone else, because it was raining, had their, their carriages covered. And uh, it, is that, it is that empathy and that engagement that is what the Pacific is, is known for. We are bound to our relationships and the ability for us to build trust with others. And that is part of the work with the centre going forward. I am looking to put forward a process called the Talanoa process in place, which is part of the Pacific tradition of dialogue and trust building and bringing people together. Now, look, I, um, I'm aware that you are not of the generation that would have seen or heard that at the time, but it's significant that we are still talking about it 70 years on. It was such a, a, a moment, if you like, that, swept around the world using the media of its time. And it's something like that that we're going to need to get through to people to get the message across that we've got to turn our back on fossil fuels and find alternative ways. Uh, and if we can get somebody colourful to do that, so much the better. 
that's all I was saying anyway. That's what I was behind that little bit of a, a, a thought bubble. <laughs> Our laws are meant to protect the health and well-being of Australians. Tobacco advertising is banned because it damages our health and hurts our communities. But the biggest threat to our health this century is climate change. Heat waves are our most deadly weather event, and they're getting worse. More intense storms, floods, droughts, and bushfires are already causing physical, mental, and economic suffering for millions. Burning fossil fuels is the major cause of climate change. And globally, the air pollution from burning coal, oil and gas kills as many people as smoking. We've banned tobacco advertising, and now it's time to ban fossil fuel advertising as well. In recognition of the damage fossil fuels are causing to our health, environment and planet. As a health professional, I support a ban on fossil fuel advertising in Australia. As a doctor, I support a ban on coal, oil and gas ads and sponsorships. As a GP, I don't want my sports and arts clubs sponsored by coal, oil or gas corporations. As a paediatric doctor, I think governments should step up, ban fossil fuel ads and acknowledge the significant health impact climate change is having on our children and community. For our planet and our health, it's time for a fossil ad ban. For our planet and our health, it's time for a fossil ad ban. Let's keep Australians safe and healthy. It's time for a fossil ad ban. Corinne and Alopi, thank you so much for a wonderful hour and, and for sharing with us uh, the work that you do, which is you know part of not looking the other way when we hear the news that our planet is destabilizing and and all the news that are coming in all the time. But how can people support Edmund Rice Center and the work that you do? Yes, people can actually come to the website on erc.org.au. And if you'd like to donate to the center and its work, we are very, very keen to get as much support as possible. Obviously, there are other social media that we have that people, which allows us to put up more regular stuff than on the website. And so if you, we have a presence on Facebook, Twitter, and we have an Instagram account, but it's, it's, it's probably less used than, than the Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, we also have specific Twitter and Facebook pages on the Pacific Calling Partnership. But if people would like to support the centre, they can go to erc.org.au slash donate and make a donation to the centre's work. And we really appreciate every single dollar that comes through to support not just us and our work, but also the work in the Pacific and with the Pacific as well as, and I should mention, the other areas we work in, which is First Nations in terms of uh, a lot of the work that has traditionally been in reconciliation, self-determination, in also refugees and people seeking asylum. So that's the other areas of work that the centre covers traditionally. But as a centre, a global centre for social justice, we are really focused on trying to achieve change, not just locally, but also regionally and globally through the work we do. That's all we could fit in the hour. So as we always end with saying, be the difference. 
And now we're sort of developing a new slogan, aren't we? Be together. Certainly what we've heard about today is, you know, begin the change by by taking that action, as we have seen Corinne and Alopi are doing, and have that courage that we can actually stabilize the planet. And, and there's more to Australia than just uh, the big island that we inhabit. We are part of a family, and we've got to look after them using our behavior. So don't be the difference. Be all-encompassing. Be the family. Be be part of the family.